All right, uh, good morning again, Redeemer. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4. We're going to be finishing up uh, Mark chapter 4 today. And just a little uh, segue about what Jesus is doing in the next several chapters. He's actually showing us that he's the one man with all that power, right? Some of you think about the song written by Kanye, and um, Jesus is the man with all the power. And we're going to see him express his power over creation. You're going to see him express power over the demonic realm. You're going to see him express power over sickness and death. You're going to see him express power even over food. And I think that this is a picture of the new kingdom to come when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. We won't suffer at the hands of nature. When God's kingdom comes in its fullness, there will be no evil spirits binding God's people. When God's kingdom comes in its fullness, there is no death and no sickness. And when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, there is no shortage of food and no poverty. In other words, what we're about to see in the next several chapters, Jesus has given us a window into what awaits us. It's Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Amen. Um, there's a song that came out. There's a thin line between love and hate. And it came out back in the 60s or 70s, I think. And then it came out again in the 80s. And then if you're in my generation, a group by the name of H-Town redid the song. And then Martin Lawrence did a movie, right? Uh, but it's the, the story, right? There, there's a thin line between love and hate. And they're talking about on a relational level that things can get really bad really fast. And I, don't, I think that's also true with our relationship with creation. Now, stay with me here. Uh, I do think there's a love-hate relationship with creation that kind of comes out in the text. But I want, you to, I want to jog your memory about geography in Mark. The more I study the book, the more I'm, I'm actually loving it, but the more I'm looking at geography and how geography is important. I want to draw your attention back to Mark chapter 1 when Jesus called the first disciples. He called Simon and Andrew and they were fishing. And you can guess where they were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Same chapter, he goes a step further, a few steps further, and he calls two more disciples. This time it's James and John, and they too were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And then you go to chapter 2, Jesus calls Levi, who is a tax collector. And you remember where he's collecting his taxes? It's right off of the Sea of Galilee. And you might, not, you might have forgotten, but all of chapter 4, when Jesus gives those parables, 
You remember where Jesus is actually teaching? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he taught them many things. And so think about that image, right? That the disciples are fishing and getting food from the sea. That Levi, the tax collector, is taxing the food from the sea. That Jesus, even when Jesus starts to preach to the thousands of people, he gets in a boat and gets on the sea and uses the sea to amplify his voice. You're getting this image of the sea is contributing to human flourishing. That when the disciples go out, they need the fish out of the sea so that humans can eat. That sea is allowing and enabling flourishing. That Levi is taxing the things coming out of the sea, and the tax money is stimulating the economy so that people have roads and have buildings and have soldiers and have all these things to make a society works. And Jesus himself uses the sea. He gets on the sea and he preaches and the sea is enabling the people, the multitudes, to hear his voice. There were no microphones like today. The sea. Mark 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's enabling humans to flourish. And then Jesus says, well, let's go to the other side of the sea. And that's when things turn really bad because that same sea that promoted flourishing is now threatening life. It's the same sea. You catch that? Can we not relate to that? One day we love creation. And the next day, we loathe it. One day, we love swimming on a lake or in a pool. And in five seconds, if you turn your eyes, your four-year-old little girl can drown. It's the same body of water. One day, you love the sun, and you love to go out in it. But you do know that same sun will bake your skin and give you skin cancer. One day we love the gentle, cool summer breeze that cools the earth off. And that same breeze will pick your car up and take it five streets over. We love the rain because it waters the crops. But we don't like the rain when we get too much of it and it comes into our house. You get the image that if we're really, really, really honest, we love creation. And there are times when you will loathe it. And we live within that tension, the same tension the disciples lived in. And here's what Jesus does in our passage. I think he gives us insight into the tension And then he says, I'm the only one that's going to resolve that. And so the first thing I want us to look at is our problem with creation. 
that Jesus has been teaching and preaching in Capernaum, and now he's about to go over to the land of the Gentiles. And we know it's sort of Gentile land because of history, but also there's, there's pigs there, and, and, and we'll get into that next week. Um, but this shouldn't surprise us. Did Jesus not just talk about in Mark about the parable of the tree that's going to grow, and that tree is going to grow and give rest and shelter for the birds of the heavens? And the case that I made to you that it's not about real birds that Jesus is talking about, he's talking about Jew and Gentile that he's building this tree. His kingdom will be this place where people from all ethnicities, from all socioeconomic standards, from all political bents, from all, I mean, people will find a common rest under the tree that Jesus is building. And so Jesus himself leaves Capernaum and goes where? Into the land of the Gentiles. And on his way into that land, you get this storm. Now, as I think about the text, I want to maybe to make us aware that there are two ways that we, should, we, we can think about the text. One way is we could say that, hey, we, I think we can maybe over-spiritualize the text, that we look at this text and we, we hear about uh, a boat and disciples and a storm, and they're going to the other side, and we can instantly kind of catapult into the spiritual realm and say, hey, when the spiritual storms of your life start to brew up, then Jesus will speak calm over them, right? I'm not denying that, and, and, and that is true. But I want to preserve the physicality of this passage. And here's what I mean. This is a real boat made of real wood, and these are real waves on a real sea, and the water's coming into the real boat, and the disciples are about to lose their real lives, Right? So let, let's, 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 let's own the physicality of what's happening in the passage. And so I want to do that. I want to honor what's happening here. And the other thing I think we need to maybe avoid is, I think, over-miracalizing the passage. And w- w- what do you mean by that? I want to make much of the miracle, but I want to push the envelope a little bit. Because I think we can talk about the miracle and we don't ask why is this miracle needed to begin with? Why are the waves about to crash upon them? Why is the sea behaving chaotically? Why is this sea contributing to flourishing one day and the next day it will do you in and do you under? My question is, why does this exist to begin with? And so this is a real, real, real storm. And they were really, really afraid, so much so that, that look at what it says, that, that they were asking Jesus in verse 38, do you not care that we are perishing? Look, we live in Jackson, and I'm from Jackson, born and raised here. And what I can say about our weather here is that it's blah, Right? We don't really get snow. I mean, we will shut the city down with an inch, right? There are no earthquakes. Jackson isn't a shaking. That even when hurricanes kind of develop on the coast, I'm kind of hoping like, man, let us get out of school. And, but by the time they kind of make it up to Jackson, it's just a lot of rain, right? That Jackson's weather is just kind of blah. But if you've lived elsewhere, 
then you understand the problem with creation. My brother and his family, they live in Huntsville, Alabama. And a few years ago, there were tornadoes that swept through Huntsville. And, and meteorologists are saying that Tornado Alley, as they call it, is probably moving more east. Whereas it used to be in Texas and Oklahoma and kind of up from there, that they're saying that there's data where it's kind of inching eastward. And a few years ago, there were tornadoes right in Huntsville. And my brother will narrate this, and it will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. He remembers what it's like to feel and hear a train coming through his house. He remembers what it's like when the windows of his house were sucked in, all of them. He remembers what it's like to be in uh, the, the tub and to not know what was going on outside of you. And he remembers what it's like to walk outside and to see that this tornado wiped out five houses skipped over his house and wiped out the next four houses and he lost two neighbors, immediate neighbors who were destroyed in the storm and there was somebody's baby 400 yards behind my brother's house in a field, unresponsive. If you ask him about the problem with creation, he's going to say, oh yeah, there is a problem and we in Blah Jackson, Mississippi, we might not always feel that. Creation is problematic. If you've gone to Tuscaloosa in the past 10 years, you know that that is not the Tuscaloosa 20 years ago. And it's not just because Bear Bryant, I mean, not Bear Bryant, what am I doing? It's not just because Alabama's football is, is rejuvenating the economy. There were tornadoes who swept through there and wiped everything out. And they're rebuilding. There's a problem, and the question that I want to ask of the text is why? Like, why? And if you study all of Scripture, you will draw this conclusion. There was a time when creation was not antithetical to humans. There was a time when you did not have to worry about tornadoes taking your life. There was a time when you did not have to worry about waves crashing in, threatening your life. And it was in the beginning when God made all things good. And we believe in the historical Adam who fell. And his fall, his disobedience has spread not just to him, but to his entire posterity or those born in Adam. And as a result of Adam, we are broken and, cre and, and our relationship with the father is fractured. But the reason Fee read from Genesis is because we tend to think about the fracturing of relationship only in the vertical or the horizontal, right? It, it's, it's human to human this way, or maybe human to God that way. But here is what you discover when you read Genesis it's also right out here to creation. Notice what God writes in Genesis. Listen to these. I'm going to read it slowly. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to, 
you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Did you, did you catch that? Because you, Adam, disobeyed me and listened to her. Cursed now is the ground and it's your fault. That's why Paul would later write in Romans chapter 8, for creation was subjected to futility and not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so the answer to the question, why is the miracle that Jesus does needed? Why is that needed? In this particular passage in Mark, why is creation revolting and heaving against them? It's because of our sin. That's not how it's supposed to be. There's a problem between us and the created world. It's fractured. It's broken. And it behaves unpredictably. If you're not a believer today and you're struggling to kind of figure out what does this mean to have alienation on a, I guess, a vertical level, might I say that this need for reconciliation with creation, it also points. It's a pointer. Things aren't right. There is no other reason for 789,000 people to be killed by earthquakes in the span of 12 years. Hurricane Katrina, 2,000. Hurricane Mitch of 1998, 20,000. There are an estimated 360,000 people who drown in our country every day. That's 10 people per, per day. Here's the thing. If you removed cancer and if you removed human to human crime, you do know that humans would still be dying at the hand of creation. There's a problem. We have a problem with it. And it has a problem with us. The second thing we see is our powerlessness over creation. That, man, these disciples, as I've showed you, that this was like their stomping ground. If anybody knew the Sea of Galilee, like they knew it. If anybody knew their boat, they knew it. If anybody knew how storm systems kind of move and went, look, like these are fishermen by trade, at, at least the four that we know right here in this passage. And for all of their knowledge and familiarity with the Sea of Galilee, what you start to understand is they are absolutely powerless in this text. They actually go to Jesus and say to Jesus on one accord, wake up, wake up. Can you do something? Do you not care? And if we believe that Mark was actually written from Peter's perspective, in other words, Mark was not the guy with them when this was going on. He's writing an account and he's using Peter's remembrance of his material to write the gospel, here's what you learn about Peter in Mark's gospel. He's rarely cast in a negative light. 
Now, other gospel writers say, no, nah, brother, you embellishing the truth. Let me, let, let me tell you how you're really like. But if I'm kind of writing my own biography, I'm probably going to embellish a little bit, right? Here's what you get in this passage. If this is from Peter, Peter is actually saying, mine, we all was scared, right? <laughs> he does not say them. He, he says we, like Brother, like we were all scared, every one of us in the boat. We were afraid of losing our lives. And here is the problem. We have a problem with creation, but it opens up another can of worms. We are actually powerless over it. We can build skyscrapers and go to the moon, but you cannot tell Hurricane Katrina not to form. There are vocations out there where we can study, right? Marine biologists study the oceanic floor, but the pressure down there will crush them. You seen the storm, ch storm chasers? Those cats who kind of follow storms when everybody else is kind of going this way, and they got their camera following storms? Brother, I appreciate the picture, but if you're not careful, you will get swept up and chewed out, right? Think about meteorologists. They can detect and determine and diagnose and tell us all the things about where this storm is moving, but not one of them can stand out there on the gulf and say, stop. You get the image? Now, here's why I think that's important to hear. And you see the powerlessness of the disciples in the passage. Because I think we're in America and, and, and our theology around creation is, can tend to be unbalanced. In other words, we see the Genesis 1 and 2, the dominion go rule and subdue and, and fill the earth. And we get that, right? But here's a part of this that's wrong. We kind of forget that we're not God. And we forget that there are limits to what we can do. And so here is what one guy, and I, I would commend this book to you. It's a guy by the name of Richard Bockham, and it's the Bible and Ecology. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to read a section of that from this book. Our ability to learn about creation can give way to a spirit of arrogance. Learning about something does not equal authority. Some things you cannot tame. In the modern history of the West, the idea of human dominion has paved the way for human aspiration to be the godlike and creative power over the world. And to counter our pride, a strong medicine is needed. We need to rediscover the other biblical account other than Genesis 1 and 2 to be put in our proper place in creation. No other book does this like Job. For over 30 chapters, we listen to Job and his friends debate God's ordering of the world and, and the role of suffering in the world. And then God finally speaks, and we should be shocked. The Lord answers Job out of a whirlwind. And then God begins to deconstruct Job's view, not only of suffering, but his role in the entire cosmos God puts Job in his proper place 
And so you get this litany of questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines the measurements of the earth? You know it. Surely you know it. Who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the heavenly host shouted for joy? Surely you know it. Or who shut the sea with the doors when it burst from the womb? Were you there when I prescribed bounds and set bars and doors for the sea? When I said, thus far, you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud ways be stopped. Have you entered the deep springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? Have you entered the storehouses of snow or have you seen the storehouses of hell? Do you know the, the way to the place where the lightning forks in the sky and the east wind is scattered upon the earth? And you get this image where if you think you're high and lofty and big and powerful, by the time God get, finishes with you in there, you're like this. You're like, you're like little Mario on Mario Brothers, right? <laughs> Not the big one, right, who can throw fly, fire and fly, but you're like the little Mario. You're little. And that's what God is doing. He is putting us back in our place. And when you read this passage... For all of their knowledge of the sea and their knowledge of maritime travel, they're powerless and can do nothing to save themselves. For all of our knowledge about creation and how it works, you can still drown in one foot of water. You feel that? It's not just problematic, family. We're also powerless over creation. And it's into this that Jesus steps into. Jesus is in the boat with them, and he shows them and us his power and the scope of his healing. I love the details in this passage. I, look, I love verse 35. It actually says, when the evening had come, Jesus said, let's go in the boat to the other side. So we probably can think that it's probably dark when this is happening. Verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him with, the, with them in the boat just as he was. What does that mean? I, I don't know, right? I don't know. Maybe Jesus had been preaching all day and did not have a chance to go and get some hot tea and cool off his vocal cords. Maybe he just went into the boat with non-fisherman garb on. He preached and they said, look, bro, we're going just like this. You don't got to go change. We got this. We got this. We can, we've done this a hundred times. We can, we, can, we can brave these waters. You don't need to go and, and protect. We got this, right? It says, just as he is. And then look at what it says about Jesus. Verse 38, he got into the boat and went into the stern and fell asleep on a cushion. I mean, think about that, right? This is Mark who writes everything fast. And now he's giving us these little details to convey the historicity of this was a real event. And then he tells us, what the disciples said when the waves were crashing and Jesus was sleeping. 
do you not care that we are perishing? The waves are coming in, and they're starting to doubt. And I'd imagine that that's kind of hard to hear. He had just told them, the kingdom is hidden from the world, but you see it. I didn't go leave when my earthly family came to get me. You're my family. And so this question, right, in the face of suffering, like, like, do you really care? Jesus does not answer. He's like, of course I care. Look at where I am right now. Instead, what Jesus does is he wakes up from his sleep and he says, peace, be still. And I love what Eugene Peterson says about this text. He says, Jesus says, quiet, settle down. And the wind ran out of breath. And the sea became smooth as glass. There was a great windstorm that moves into a great calm. And it's because Jesus did it. But there's something in this passage that I think is really important. They went from being afraid of the storm to when Jesus calmed the storm, notice who they were now afraid of. Did you catch that? Look at verse 40. The wind ceased and there was great calm. And then he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Why are they afraid? Because they know that there is one person who put the bars to the sea. And they know that there is one person who told the sea how far you can come and no more. They know that there is one person who laid the foundations of the earth. There is one person and what they're seeing right now is that one person is with them clothed in flesh in the boat. This is not just an ordinary man. This is God, creator and sustainer of all things right there in the boat with him. And now they're really afraid. Like they're like, whoa, oh, oh, look at who's in the boat with us now. And what does Jesus do? He's showing them only one person has this kind of power. And it's not you. It's me. I'm the fixer of creation. I'm the one who tells the waves to obey, and they do. I tell that tree where to fall. I tell that storm not to brew. What do you do with a passage like this, family? A few things. First, pay attention to the most horrific acts in nature. Tornadoes hurricanes, earthquakes, you name it. And if we're really, really honest, those things terrify us. And you know what Jesus says? If you think 
that hurricane is strong, what do you think it's like to fall in the hands of an angry God? If you think creation can cause destruction, what do you think the Lord of creation, what kind of power do you think he has at his disposal? You see, I think creation is preaching and so much of God's wrath is kind of image, right? It's, it's, it's when God comes in his wrath, people will want to run and flee into the mountains. So much of God's wrath is imaged through creation because when we can't reach out in faith and comprehend the wrath of God, we can't comprehend the wrath of created things. And it's supposed to draw us to a holy reverence and fear of the living God. And that's what the disciples feel. They feel this. They feel this in this boat. They are afraid because the Lord of hosts is right there. The second thing I think we un- it, 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 it stretches our understanding of Jesus, that he is the one with all this power, and he would use these momentary miracles to kind of show it, And then he would kind of conceal it. And then you get this rhythm of of miracle and then concealing. And then you get to the end of his life. Where he does no miracle. That he actually subjects himself to a storm that has been brewing since the day that Adam fell. And it's the storm of God's wrath. That he did not stop that. He did not do something to avoid it. That on the cross of Christ, this one in this boat who has this kind of power does not express power, but rather he absorbs the wrath of God. And here is what creation does. Have you ever paid attention to what creation does when the Messiah is crucified? The sun, it stops shining in the broad daylight. It just stops. The ground shakes and the rocks split open. It's as if all of creation is pointing to this truth and this reality. This was not just a mortal man. Creation is bearing witness that this is our maker and he is making peace, not just with us and God, but also with God, with us and creation. Creation is testifying This is the Lord of glory. And if creation responds, how much more should we? With fear and faith. Lastly, this love-hate relationship that we now have with creation, it's short-lived. God has reconciled all things to himself through Jesus. God has reconciled you to himself by faith. But the other thing that's, that hinges off of the cross of Christ is the restoration of creation. 
That's why the prophets, they speak of the new heavens, the new earth. They speak of the mountains galloping. They speak of everything in the sea worshiping the lamb. They speak of there is no sea in Revelation 21, which doesn't mean literal water, but there is, there are no chaotic forces against us anymore. There is a place where lion will lay next to lamb. There is no sickness, no death, no sorrow, no sadness. And Jesus says he is the one that will bring that to be. And if we're in him, this tension we live with creation, it's short-lived, beloved. It's short-lived. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. Narnia is set and there's a frozen tundra all over the land. And Mr. Beaver is trying to tell the children about the lion, Aslan, who's a Jesus figure. And here's what Mr. Beaver told them. He says, wrong will be made right when Aslan is in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter will meet its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. Did you catch that? C.S. Lewis knew the relationship between sin and creation, and he knew the relationship between the work of Christ. It reconciles us to God, but it is going, he is going to fix and repair creation so that you no longer are afraid. You no longer have to worry and live in fear. My goal and my desire for us is that we would rest in that, worship Jesus for it, and await that day when his kingdom comes in its fullness. Let's pray. Oh, what a beautiful day it will be. O oh Lord, when the sun returns and makes all things new, we see beautiful things in creation even now, and it's hard to fathom what a renewed heaven and a renewed earth will be like, but we trust you by faith, Lord Jesus, that through your cross you've reconciled us to the Father, but you have also done a work that we don't think deeply about all the time. That Paul says that creation longs eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And that's hard for adults to fathom this idea that a tree can be longing, a rock can be longing. The things that we tend to not think as having and the capacity to long for redemption. But Father, we trust your word. And Paul says that creation waits eagerly for these things. And so help us, Lord, as we leave this place to marvel and trust in the finished work of Christ. Help us to be like the disciples, to have a holy fear and reverence of you. 
Give us eyes of faith that we might see you as the reconciler of all things. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.